It is so much fun to see you here this morning. I am so grateful to be able to serve as your pastor and to see all of you crammed in there together like the good old days when we didn't worry about masks and social distancing. Can we just say goodbye COVID and, and welcome back to life together in community. It's such a joy to see all of y'all. Christ is risen. He is risen indeed. You know, as we were singing those songs, I couldn't help but just remember the church universal, the church all over the world. In so many tribes, tongues, and languages, I've had a great privilege of traveling in many places around the world. And I know people by name who worship in so many different languages. Their music's not quite this pretty. <laughs> but their hearts are alive for Christ. And I wish you could see it. It's not an American thing. It's a whole world thing that gathers on this day and declares that Christ is risen. It is a game changer. Change the whole world. Change my world. And I hope today that you are excited to come to the empty tomb. You know, I think uh, many of you maybe are visiting, but this is a true story. So we started uh, just working through the Gospel of John in the fall of 2019. And we've just taken one verse at a time and one thought unit at a time. And it just so happens that today, our next verse in line is John 21 through 10. And so we have been sitting at the foot of the cross for weeks We have really taken into account everything it means, what Jesus said on the cross. But today it is a great joy for us to come to the empty tomb. I will walk you through it, and I I hope that you'll come to understand and appreciate every little detail of this great story that we find John's personal eyewitness account of what happened on that first day. So please stand. We're going to read the word of the Lord as we have for many Sundays now for a couple years from the Gospel of John. The words are on the screen. Please read aloud with me. Now on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early while it was still dark and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. So she ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved, and said to them, They have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they have laid him. So Peter went out with the other disciple, and they were going toward the tomb. Both of them were running together, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. And stooping to look in, he saw the linen cloths lying there, but he did not go in. Then Simon Peter came, following him, and went into the tomb. He saw the linen cloths lying there, and the face cloth, which had been on Jesus' head, not lying with the linen cloths, but folded up in a place by itself. Then the other disciple, who had reached the tomb first, also went in, and he saw and believed. For as yet they did not understand the scripture, that he must rise from the dead. Then the disciples went back to their homes. Thank you. Please be seated. Lord, as we gather this morning, I just pray that your Holy Spirit would visit with us, that we would know that we had heard from God, that you would open our imaginations, that we might enter back into the scene and gaze upon the empty tomb as though we were there on that first day. Help us to understand that it's true and what it means in light of all the questions and pains that we brought with us today. This is the hope of the world, and it's true. Help us to see that 
and to be transformed by it. In Jesus' name we pray. And all the church said, amen. So my message this morning is entitled The First Day. And as usual, I just broke it under three subheadings. Uh, first, the, the first day. Uh, number two, the empty tomb. And three, understanding scripture. So first, the first day. You know, as we step back, and this is really what expository preaching does. And, and you know, I don't, I'm not trying to like hit you up with new behavior or anything like that. I just want you to walk with me and come back and revisit the scene. It's so compelling. But first, we must revisit the foot of the cross. It's where we have been for several weeks. We've heard Jesus declare, finished. And then we watched him die. And remember that what should have happened is that his body should have been discarded. It should have been buried or just thrown on the trash heap with other bodies of criminals. That's what happened. It was a common grave. But by God's providence, Joseph of Arimathea, who's actually a member of the Jewish council, came as a secret believer and asked Pontius Pilate for the body. Pilate, who had kind of a soft place in his heart for Christ, he didn't want to crucify him, was willing to give the body over to this councilman. And then he, along with another member of the Jewish council, Nicodemus, who is also a secret believer, they took the body, they wrapped it, And they placed it in a new tomb. It was a tomb that belonged to Joseph of Arimathea. It was a very wealthy man's tomb, carved out of stone, never had been used before. It was located very close to Golgotha. And they laid the body to rest there. And then they placed a very large stone that was in a track. And they rolled it to protect the tomb from grave robbers or what have you. And then we learn also in Matthew's account that that the chief priests were so paranoid that they actually asked Pontius Pilate to put a guard, which would have consisted of six soldiers, around the tomb to ensure that no mischief took place following his death. So that's the situation that we find ourselves in. And it's incredibly important for us to remember uh, also that, <laughs> that Jesus most likely died on a Wednesday. Uh, you can go back and view my messages. I walked the church through that. Uh, the next day would have been the high and holy day, uh, Nisan 15. Then Friday, when the women would have gone and prepared the spices, Saturday, another Sabbath. And so it's been three days and three nights since Christ has been laid to rest. This is the fulfillment of the sign of Jonah that he pointed to in Matthew 12, when he said, just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. So that's where we're going to pick up the narrative. After three days and three nights... And it's just been a dark three days and three nights. But John recalls the first day like this. Now, on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early while it was still dark and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. So she ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved, and said to them, they've taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they've laid him. Now, as we've observed throughout John's gospel, there's no insignificant details. And so what I would like to do is take a very familiar passage for many of you and just walk you through the details because there's actually quite a bit that's revealed here and it's very significant. First, notice the very specific detail regarding the time. Early on the first day of the week, while it was still dark. Some of you remember, uh, we've covered this, that the Romans, if you lived in a Roman-occupied territory, they spoke of the night in four watches. There was 6 to 9 p.m., 9 to midnight, midnight to 3 a.m., and then 3 a.m. to 6 a.m. And, and it was so common in the Roman world that whenever you talked about the night, you would just use kind of a trigger word to determine, you know, which watch you were talking about. We saw this when, when Jesus predicted that Peter would deny him three times before the cock crowed. 
And then we discovered that the roosters were outlawed in Jerusalem. I'm like, well, the cock crow is just at 3 a.m. The Romans would blow a trumpet. They blow it multiple times for the change of the guard. And that was called the cock crow, right? So that dated the betrayal of, of Peter from 12 to 3 a.m. Well, there's another one of those words here that all the Jews would have remembered and known that. You don't know it. But the Greek word proi that's translated in our English Bible as early, it actually refers to the common term for the fourth watch. Uh, which dates this time from 3 to 6 a.m. Jesus actually used all four one time in one of his teachings in Mark 13. He's describing the coming of the Lord. He's telling people to be ready. He says, therefore, stay awake for you do not know when the master of the house will come in in the evening or at midnight or when the cock crows or in the morning. And those were just using those, those words that all the Jews in the Roman occupied areas were familiar with. And this is another one of those words. So we know it's 3 to 6 a.m. when they, they set out. And John says, while it was still dark, for the Jewish reader, that's redundant. You just said it was the fourth watch. We know it's dark, right? Three to 6 a.m. And so I think John uses dark and light imagery so much. Remember, Nicodemus came to see Jesus in the dark. Like, he's always using this imagery. And so he's setting the tone. It's not just dark outside. While it was still dark, while there was still no hope, while there was just not even a whisper of resurrection, these women set out to go to the tomb of a dead man. And you might ask why. You know, I mean, Mary, the mother of Jesus, and Mary Magdalene, they saw Nicodemus show up with 70 pounds of spices. There doesn't need to be any more spices. Never mind the fact that these women cannot possibly roll that stone away. So it's almost an irrational, we're just going to go. We're, if nothing else, we're just going to grieve outside of his tomb. Why would they? They just love Jesus. They have spent their last three years listening to every word he said, watching him. They've watched him die. It's still dark, but they're going to go to the tomb nonetheless. I just want you to see those women in tears, hand in hand, making their way in the dark to the empty tomb. Now, now note that it was the first day. Uh, this is common in the Roman world, the Jewish world, our world. We always think of the first day as Sunday. That gives us a time stamp. But it, it goes deeper than that. You know, as many of you know, the Jews set apart Saturday as their Sabbath. And that was because, you know, God created the heavens and the earth in six days. On the seventh day, he rested. And so it was a day to rest. Uh, it was a day set apart to remember God resting after the creation of the world. But after the tomb is discovered on the first day of the week... The church would forever after set apart Sunday as her Sabbath because Sunday will forever mark the first day of the new creation. That's, some people ask that question. Now you know, right? And really, if you think about it, this particular Sunday, John 20 verse 1, marks the first day of the first week of the first month of the first year of what will forever after be known as Anum Exergendi Domini, the year of the risen Lord. And we will just use the words you know, the letters A.D. Now, after we acknowledged that was the first day, we actually went back and added 33 days, 33 years to account for his birth. But this was where it began. This is where this new timestamp happened on the first day of the first week when the empty tomb was discovered. Because that's where, for the first time, the world had hope in light of the grave. Prior to that time, there was no hope in the world. 
And so when you say A.D., Anno Domini, the year of our Lord, it really is the year of our resurrected Lord, and it began on this day, the first day. And that is a great encouragement. Church, the tomb is empty. Christ is risen, just as he said. And it is appropriate for us to say, Amen. Amen. Yeah, this is where it started on the first day. So moving forward to the empty tomb, here's how John describes it. Now, on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early while it was still dark and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. So she ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved, and said to them, they have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they have laid him. Now, we have to immediately notice that in John's account, the only one that he talks about going to the tomb is Mary, Mary Magdalene. And some of you are very familiar with Matthew, Mark, and Luke's version, and it says multiple women. In fact, if you look at all four Gospels, it would seem that Mary, the mother of Jesus, Mary Magdalene, uh, Mary, the mother of Jesus' sister, Salome, and then a woman named Joanne, they all went. And so some of you get kind of hung up on like, hey, which one is it? Is it a bunch of women? Is it just one? I'm going to resolve that for you. There's no conflict here at all. But I do want to say, it's, this is John's nature. John doesn't look at the general. He zooms in on the specific. He's also assuming that you've read the other synoptic gospels because his gospel came out 15 to 20 years after theirs. And I'll explain why in just a minute. But John always likes to zoom in on a very specific person. So Jesus' conversation with Nicodemus or Jesus and the woman at the well in John 4 or Jesus in his conversation with Mary and Martha, he always zooms in. And this is a zoom in. And you have to remember this also, that John is recalling the first day from his own experience. And his first day began with Mary knocking on his door. So he's recalling his own experience. Uh, So... Having mustered both Peter and John, here's what Mary says to the men in verse 2. They have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where where they have laid him. This is very, very telling. You know, Mary is in the dark, and she has absolutely no clue about what has happened. And, And here's the deal, is that Mary did not stay to investigate the empty tomb. When you read Matthew, Mark, and Luke, the women who stayed investigate the empty tomb, and they have an encounter with angels who say, hey, he's not here, he's risen just as he said. That's not Mary's story. Because as soon as Mary saw that that stone was rolled away, she assumed the worst, and she said, I have to go tell Peter and John. And so she turned and immediately ran back to fetch them. She didn't have the experience with the angels. She has no idea of what's happened, but she makes an assumption. They've taken him, they, the enemies of Jesus, or you know, the chief priest, or the Romans, or somebody, they have taken his body. We, we don't know where they've laid him. Now, this is really significant. You have to understand, there's nobody on, in the New Testament of these early disciples who anticipated that Jesus was going to rise on the third day. Like, it never really, clearly they heard Jesus say it, but they either didn't understand what he said, or they thought he was just talking in metaphors. <laughs> but it, like, it never actually occurred to Mary that he's risen. She thinks, foul play, somebody's done something with the body. Uh, in the real world, people who are dead stay dead. And the only exception that they've ever seen to that was when Jesus called Lazarus out of the grave and Jesus was alive in order to do that. And that was a resuscitation. He just came back to life. So there's no mindset that Jesus is going to raise again from the dead. And that is actually to our benefit because it leads us to only one reasonable conclusion that the only reason that the disciples believe that Jesus arose from the dead is because they saw him three days after his public death and burial. 
they did not at all immediately assume he had risen just because the tomb was empty. And we'll see that in just a minute. Now notice that Mary says, and we do not know where they have laid him. So unless Mary has, you know, multiple personality disorder, <laughs> she, she clearly indicates there were more, it was more than me. We, the women, we don't, we don't know where they have laid him. So we clearly have the idea that Mary had left the women to fetch John and Peter. And that simple explanation helps resolve any issues that you might have with the four gospel accounts. This is clearly the story. That's why these women had their encounter with, Jesus, with the angel. Uh, Mary's going to have a different one. And we'll see that next week, both with the angel and with the risen Lord. Now, let us consider the reaction from the men, because it's interesting. Verse 3 and 4, John writes, So Peter went out with the other disciple, and they were going toward the tomb. Both of them were running together, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. Just a few things to note. If, if you're not familiar with the Gospel of John, whenever you hear the other disciple or the disciple that Jesus loved, he's referring to himself. He's referring to the writer of this Gospel, John. But he's very modest. He only speaks in the first person once at the very, very end of the Scripture. So this is normal, but he's clearly talking about himself. Now, we should observe that Mary Magdalene knew exactly where to find Peter and John. Remember that on the night that Jesus was betrayed, when he was arrested, nine of the 11 apostles just scattered. They abandoned Jesus completely. We don't see or hear from them again until after the resurrection. But Peter and John followed Jesus. They followed him all the way to Caiaphas' house. And John actually watched Peter deny Jesus three times, the great leader of the disciples. It was very disillusioning. But John was young, Peter was probably his boss in the fishing industry, and Peter was the default leader, and they continue to be in close relationship and are probably even staying together very close by. Mary knows where to find them. She runs to tell them about what has happened. Now, John is going to tell this story late in life. He's an old man when he writes his gospel. Peter's probably long since dead and buried, right? But do you notice the little jab there? This is just kind of funny. John says, well, we were both running, but I smoked them, all right? John was probably 18, seven, maybe 16 to 18 years old when he was a disciple when Jesus roamed the earth. And uh, he just can't help but slip that in there. It's just kind of funny, but it also serves a bit of a purpose. You have to remember that the gospel of Mark was the first gospel that came out. It was probably late 50s. And then John finally, as an old man, wrote his gospel. He actually had to be talked into it by many of the people that he had taught because he was a very humble disciple. He, he probably wouldn't have written it if it hadn't been for the encouragement. Obviously, he was convicted by the Holy Spirit, but he wrote it later. And you can imagine, you know, a new gospel coming into circulation 15 to 20 years after the other three gospels are already in circulation. Maybe people are a little suspect. And John makes a point right here. Hey, I, I was there first. I, in fact, I smoked the old man, right? And I was the first one to believe in the resurrection. And that's what comes next in our text, verses 5 and 8. And stooping to look in, he saw the linen cloth lying there, but he did not go in. Then Simon Peter came following him and went into the tomb. He saw the linen cloth lying there and the face cloth, which had been on Jesus' head, not lying where the linen cloths, but folded up in a place by itself. Then the other disciple who had reached the tomb first also went in and he saw and believed. Now this is very specific. First of all, notice the humility of John. He was a young man. He did outrun his mentor and his boss. 
but he didn't go in. He was either felt like it was very inappropriate for him to go in or that Peter would knock him a new one if he went in without him, or maybe he was even scared to go into the tomb. We don't know, but he stops and he peeks in. Peter comes huffing and puffing along, right? Get out of the way. And uh, just goes barreling right in there, and uh, John follows him. Now, notice the really specific details. This is an eyewitness account. You have to listen very carefully. Here's what he says. The linen clothes were lying there, and the face cloth, which had been on Jesus' head, would not line with the linen cloth, but folded up in a place by itself. Very, very specific, very, very important. Now, so you know the Egyptians would entomb their dead. The Romans and the Greeks would cremate their dead. But the Jews had a very specific and practical way that they dealt with the dead. They would lay them out, they would cross their arms like this or like this, and then they would wrap their bodies in a linen cloth. They'd begin at the feet, and they would either dip the cloth uh, in this combination of, of myrrh and aloe, or they would spread it in between each layer, but they would wrap from the feet all the way up to the collarbone. Then they would leave the neck and this part of the face open, and then they would wrap the head with more linen cloth that would be like a turban. And all of it was soaked or, or layered with this myrrh and aloe combination. Well, after three days and three nights, that myrrh, which was made up of a gummy resin, would harden. So are you getting the picture? So you literally would then have a cocoon that would fit perfectly the shape of that person's body. And then also the turban, if it had been laced with the myrrh, would harden as it was folded around the head. Now listen again very carefully. The linen clothes lying there and the face cloth, which had been on Jesus' head, not lined with the linen cloth, but folded or rolled up in a place by itself. This is what John saw. And it immediately led him to believe some miracle had happened, right? Because there's no other reasonable explanation. If someone just stole the body, they would have just taken the grave clothes. If they had cut them out of the body, that's exactly what would have happened. They would have had to cut him out of that hardened cocoon. If Jesus had had one of those, you know, holy gray moments, not quite dead yet, right? You know, never mind. What are you people watching college? So, you know, there's some people argue, well, he wasn't actually dead. Well, if he was wrapped in, in that, he he would have had, it would have been very hard for him to get out of it and it would have been ripped to pieces. Somebody would have to cut him out. He would have had to rip it off. But here's what John just said. We went in and we saw the cocoon unmolested. We saw that the head turban exactly where he'd been laid to rest and there was no body. That is what led him to believe. New Testament scholar John Stott used the image to suggest that what they saw was like a discarded chrysalis from which the butterfly has emerged. It's just a miracle. John believed. He believed because of what he saw firsthand, not because he expected Jesus to rise from the dead. He simply did not understand the scriptures that Jesus had to rise from the dead. He's given you his eyewitness account we walked into the tomb. The cocoon was there. The turban was there. There was no body. And there's no other reasonable explanation. Christ is risen. 
Which leads me now to my final subheading, Understanding Scripture. You know, if you grew up as a Jewish boy, you grew up memorizing the Scriptures. I mean, this was going to be in every Jewish family. And uh, you would have them memorized. You would know so many Scriptures by the time you were 8, 9, 10 years old. Then these men walked with Jesus for three years. And he was constantly interpreting and unpacking and teaching them the Scriptures and what they meant. But here's what John admits. I believe because I saw the cocoon. But in verse 9 he says, For as yet they did not understand the scripture that he must rise from the dead. And this is really a self-critique and reflection. We should have expected this, but we missed it. Alexander McLaren, the great New Testament writer, uh, not writer, commentator and pastor, uh, one of my favorite guys. Here's what he says. He said, their failure to understand Christ's frequent distinct prophecies that he would rise again the third day has been thought incredible, but is surely intelligible enough if we remember how unexampled such a thing was and how, listen, and how marvelous is our power of hearing and not hearing the plainest truth. How many of you have kids? (laughs) Amen, right? Hearing, but not hearing the plainest truth. And really all of us are that way. I mean, people can tell us something over and over. I mean, I'm always amazed by how people, you know, like who grew up in our church and, you know, they're, they're kind of wild and crazy. And then they go off to college and they'll get into student ministry and they'll give their life to the Lord and they'll come back and say, I heard the gospel. I'm like, (laughs) we hear, but we miss it, don't we? And sometimes we only hear when the Holy Spirit makes it possible for us to understand McLaren goes on, he says, we all in the course of our lives are lost in astonishment when things befall us, which we have been plainly told will befall. The fulfillment of all divine promises and threatening is a surprise and no warnings beforehand teach one tithe so clearly as experience. And this is just true. Most of us learn through experience. You know, if you have four kids, you'll have at least one of them who they just learn the hard way, right? And uh, that's kind of what we're hearing. John is saying, hey, I believe because of what I saw with my eyes, the cocoon. There was no other reasonable explanation. But the fact is, I should have, I should have known. He told us this. It's in the scriptures and so on. I just want to say the fact that we have heard from eyewitnesses who were not expecting a resurrection, it's helpful. If you're a skeptic today, that, that should be of some comfort to you that this is historically reliable. They didn't read into anything. They completely didn't get it that he was going to rise on the third day. And it was only because of what they saw with their eyes, the cocoon, the turban. And then, of course, later they encounter the risen Jesus himself. And that's their testimony. We'll see that further next week. What I want you to understand is that the scriptures did point to this. And I'm just going to give you a little bit of evidence for that. In Psalm 69 and 10, we read, Therefore, my heart is glad and my whole being rejoices. My flesh also dwells secure. For you will not abandon my soul to sail or let your Holy One see corruption. This is attributed to David uh, back a thousand years before Christ. But, you know, Peter will argue later, as will Paul, David saw corruption. You can go find where his body was laid to rest and there's nothing but dust there. So, so, so many of the scriptures that were imparted to David, imparted to the prophets, pointed to the, the Messiah, the one who's coming, the anointed one, the chosen one of God. And the church later would see this as clear evidence. Of course, there's other Old Testament foreshadowing. I'll touch on that in a second. But listen also to the teaching of Jesus. Very explicit, 
Mark 8, Matthew 17, Luke 9, Jesus states, The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. Doesn't get any more plain and obvious than that, right? But then there were other teachings, like when he pointed to the sign of Jonah in Matthew 12, 40, just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. Just as Jonah left the great fish, so the Son of Man will leave the heart of the earth. That's clearly pointing to resurrection. John 2, 19, Jesus said, destroy this temple in three days, I will raise it up. Of course, people thought he was talking about the temple temple. He was you know, John tells us he was speaking about the temple of his body. And only after the resurrection did the disciples remember that he'd even said this. And they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus spoke. Remember when they, they made charges against Jesus. You know, the charge that finally like got the interest of the, of the council was that this man claimed to be able to destroy the temple and raise it up in three days. So even his enemies remembered <laughs> better than the disciples that Jesus had made this prediction. So... This kind of explains what we see in the other gospel accounts. When the women get to the empty tomb, the disciples, as, and they were disciples, they were female disciples, the first ones to get to the tomb, but they didn't get it. And the, the angels who are there give them a little bit of a rebuke. Remember this? Luke 24, 4 and 8. While the women were perplexed about this, behold, two men stood by them in dazzling apparel. And as they were frightened and bowed their faces to the ground, the men said to them, why do you seek the living among the dead? He's not here, but is risen. Remember how he told you while he was still in Galilee that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified and on the third day rise. And they remembered his words. Matthew 28, 6, the angel states, he's not here, he's risen, just as he said, right? The rebuke from heaven is, this shouldn't be a surprise. This was the plan. And the plan has been communicated all through the scriptures and even by Jesus himself. But we're all a little bit slow sometimes to understand. But the point is clear in verse 9. The scriptures provide understanding if we'll take time to read them. Did you know that you could go back and you could read the Old Testament? You could put on your Jesus spectacles and you'd be shocked and amazed to find that every story in every book of the Bible is pointing to Jesus. Let me just give you a little run through quick. So let's take Genesis, for example. Jesus is the seed of the woman who crushes the head of the serpent after being struck by the toxic poison of the serpent, right? Death, resurrection, Satan is defeated. You, you know, look at Isaac. Remember Isaac born to Abraham and Sarah? They were like 90. Impossible. A miraculous birth. A miraculous birth of a son who then what? The loving father has to go sacrifice, right? Jesus is, that's pointing to Jesus, the miraculous son who will be the sacrifice for all of the world. You know, many of you remember the great story about Joseph. Remember Joseph, the chosen one, betrayed by his brothers. He ends up suffering imprisonment with the damned, though he committed no crime only to be resurrected to a place of great leadership and a savior who then forgives those who betrayed him. All of these things are pointing to Jesus. In Exodus, we've already covered this at length, you know, that Jesus is the Passover lamb. All of the Passover was pointing to the blood of the lamb that would take away the sins of the world, who Jesus fulfills all of that. When you, you get into Leviticus, the Passover meal, Jesus 
he said, eat my flesh, drink my blood. He's talking to flesh. He pointed to the manna from heaven, which was a sign in Exodus. The water that came from the rock. This is the, the living water that will never thirst again. Jesus points to all of that constantly said, that was about me. Even in numbers. How many of you have actually read numbers? Okay. Thank you for being honest. All right. But there's this great story of when they're out in the wilderness and, and all the people of Israel are stung by, by snakes. And, and Moses gets this weird, bizarre direction from God to, to form a, a bronze serpent and affix it to a, like a staff and then hold it up. And everyone who looks upon that, that symbol would be healed from the snake bite. And Jesus said, just as Moses lifted up the serpent, so the Son of Man will be lifted up. And all men would be drawn to him. Every, you could go through every book of the Old Testament and you'll find story after story. And this was the point. They did not understand the scriptures. And so, I just want to say, if you read the scriptures, Jesus had to die and to be raised on the third day so that we might be forgiven and one day resurrected into new creatures who will dwell forever in a new heaven and new earth. That is all over the text. And this is a good news gospel. It is finished. It's been accomplished. That's why we gather here on the Sunday morning. This message of the scriptures is redundant. The message of the scripture is true, but it is not intuitive. We have to learn. It has to be revealed to us. We have to read about it. But it, it's not self-evident just because the tomb is empty. You know, Pastor Greg and I were talking, he's preaching over at the other campus today. We were talking about the great climactic end of our text today. Then the disciples went back to their homes. <laughs> right? This is my concern for you, church. That we'll have come and looked at the empty tomb and seen the stone roll away and the, and the empty cocoon and the turban and find no other explanation other than Jesus literally rose up from the grave and you'll be like hmm and then go back to your home because that's what Peter and John did it was not immediately self-evident in fact if you actually study all four gospels in the hours that follow the discovery of the empty tomb there's just confusion continuing lingering sadness you know the, the women come back and find the rest of the disciples now gathered together and they don't believe them they think they're just silly women. Two things are needed. One is a personal encounter with Jesus Christ, who is alive and not dead. And secondly, is that he would move in our spirits to open the scriptures to us, that we would understand the scriptures. We're going to see that next week, but I, I want to just point you to your assignment this week. Go back and read Luke 24, and there's a remarkable story of two disciples who are walking on the road to Emmaus. They've heard of the empty tomb. They don't buy it. They don't understand it. They don't even know what to think about it. All they know is that Jesus died. And now there's some rumor about the empty tomb. And Jesus himself encounters them and they don't recognize them. But he says, don't you understand this had to happen? And then we read, and beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. And then Jesus disappears from their sight. And they say to each other in verse 32, did not our hearts burn within us while we talked to us while he talked to us on the road while he opened to us the scriptures and those people those two people did not walk to their home 
they ran seven miles back to Jerusalem to tell anybody who would listen, he's not dead, he's alive. This is the work of the church. It's for us to come to a place where we have a personal encounter with risen Christ, which you should ask for that. You know, I don't think Peter wanted to believe because he was so covered up in his shame. Even if it was true, Jesus would want nothing to do with me. And I think that's where a lot of people are. But I'm going to tell you right now that Jesus died for you. And he rose again on the third day so that he could come to you as the living Lord who's conquered death and atone for your sin and have a personal relationship with each and every one of you. But he won't come if you don't ask him. He'll knock on the door of your heart. He'll try to bring conviction. But at some point, we have to quit pushing him away, quit trying to make excuses for why he would never want anything to do with us and just welcome a relationship with the living Lord and let him open the scriptures to us. There's no substitute to actually just reading the Bible. But I so encourage you, if, if you're tempted to leave here today and say, well, that was nice. Yeah, the tomb's empty. I'm just going to go home and watch Netflix. Take just a minute and ask Jesus Christ to visit you, to come alongside of you, and to open your heart to the scriptures. Because this is a, a game changer. It changed my life. It changed the lives of many people. How many of you know this changed your life? This is the testimony of the church universal. And I encourage you to come back and walk with us through the remainder of the gospel of John, especially as we sit here at the empty tomb, because we're going we're gonna to see several things happen here, and it's remarkable. But it will help open your heart to the scriptures, and uh, it'll change your life. I just want to make my confession. I mean, I was a senior in seminary, have been a lifetime Christian, going to church. I'm, I'm one of those people, right? Heard the gospel a thousand times, but found my place, my, myself in a very dark place in a world crushed with doubt and my own sin. I was on the edge of despair, ready to just walk away. And I cried out to Jesus, we need to have a meeting. And he came to me. I have never experienced anything like it. And it changed my life. And he opened my eyes to see my own sin and to understand the scriptures and that he was alive. He's very capable of visiting with you as well. I believe. I believe with all my heart that this is true. And I beseech you, repent of your sin and turn to him. Call upon the name of Jesus and ask him to forgive your sins and then commit your life to follow him. He is the way, the truth, and the life. And there is no other way to the Father. This is the gospel of Jesus Christ. And it is good news. Amen? Amen. Will you pray with me? Lord, as we close our service today on this Resurrection Sunday, we acknowledge that every Sunday is Resurrection Sunday. Every Sunday we walk out of the darkness of our sin and the darkness of all the events that are happening in the world and we come to discover once again that the tomb is empty. Death has been swallowed up in victory and that you have ascended to the right hand of the Father where you intercede for your church. You are the Lord. And it resurrects hope once again even as we stand by the bedside of our loved ones who die at the graveside of those who are being put to rest. As we stand at the death of our marriage or the death of the dream of what we thought our lives would be or our careers would be or what our country should be, 
we find the good news. The tomb is empty. Christ is risen. Death is defeated. And those of us who love you are adopted into your family, called the children of God, and commissioned as ambassadors of this good news to this hurting culture. Lord, I pray that you would raise up your church, not just here, but all over the world, that we'd be faithful witnesses like John, that you are alive. That because of that one fact, it is well. And we pray this in Jesus' name.